Welcome to the Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. Glad you could be with us because we have, once again, once again, we have jammed the next two hours full of radio goodness. All kinds of stuff going on today. Captain Kirk going up to space and then coming back. I must say, I was kind of surprised how brief Captain Kirk's trip was. I mean, what was that old line in Star Trek? It was a five-year mission. This was a five-minute mission, but okay. You know what? It's still more minutes in space than I've had. So, And you know, he's 90 years old. How long do we want him in space? <laughs> I don't know. Do we want a 90-year-old man floating around in space for too long? I'm not sure. However, good for him and good that they got him back safely and all the rest. And we'll be talking about that. We're going to be talking next hour. And you may want to have a stiff drink ready for next hour when we get talking about this. Story in the Toronto Star yesterday, the day before, we're talking about it today anyway. Your winter home heating prices, Did you have you heard what you should be expecting as far as how much more you're going to pay this year? As I say, you may want to get a stiff drink. I'm telling you, it is. If the predictions are anywhere close to the reality, uh, this may be the last stiff drink you can afford. Let's put it that way. It is... Uh, it is not good. It is not good. As always, the first segment of the Scott Radley Show is brought to you exclusively by fox40shop.com. For sport and for safety, it has to be fox40shop.com. Enter the promo code RADLEY at checkout, and you will get 25% off your order. All right, I want to jump into the other thing that I really want to get into today. And this was, this was a shocker to me. It really was. Uh, I, I had no... Well, we know that, you know, there are people who are not getting vaccinated. That's, that's the reality. And people, you know, just look, I, I want people to get vaccinated. I'm very uncomfortable with telling everybody that they must, or they can't work or whatever else that, 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 you know, we, we start to get into some territory that I'm a little uncomfortable with there, but nonetheless, that's where we are. We've heard that with the federal government. Well, the one place that I didn't though, completely expect that we would have trouble getting people vaccinated was within the hospital system. However, the story of the spec.com today and in the paper, here's the headline. Nearly 1,500 ha Hamilton hospital staff risk losing their job over COVID shots. The reporter who put this piece together is Joanna Frickatich, who joins us now. Joanna, how are you tonight? How are you? Excellent. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate your time. I must tell you, when I saw the headline and then... By the way, for anyone who doesn't do this already, you can read a headline, but don't just judge the story on the headline. Dive in, read the stuff, because we get that all the time in the paper. Oh, the headline said, that. no, it is 1,500. It's maybe more than 1,500. I was stunned. It seems like enormous numbers for people working in the hospital system of all places. Uh, it is uh, it is rather large numbers, especially because uh, these staff uh, could face uh, increasing discipline uh, in, up to uh, termination uh, in November when the hospitals move to tougher uh, vaccine policies. And the hospitals are already quite short staffed, so uh, you know that is a lot of staff. Now it's hard to know how many of those would actually get to the point of termination or what type of discipline sure. they'll be facing, but it is uh, big numbers. Um, although I feel I should put in perspective that. So Hamilton Health Sciences uh, does have uh, more than 13,000 staff, and St. Joe's has uh, uh, more than uh, 5,800. So oh, there's is... tons of people. Yeah. yeah, there's tons of people. But as I say, I, you would think, I would think that the people working in the medical environment in the hospital system would be the first people lining up to get the shot. 
Well, and they have been eligible uh, the lo- the longest, um, you know, when it comes to people their age or in the general population. I mean, healthcare workers um, were among uh, the first to get the shot uh, in Hamilton, you know, just behind uh, long-term care homes and retirement homes. So, you know, they have had uh, ample time and, uh, you know, ample supply in order uh, to uh, get the vaccine. Some of the clinics were, you know, within hospital uh, properties themselves. Mm-hmm. And haven't we heard repeatedly the stories that say the people who are working in the hospitals are the ones who are exhausted by all the workload and the people who are who they're seeing who are sick and, you know, all the stuff. Now, I understand and I want to clarify this. This doesn't necessarily mean doctors and nurses only. There could be some. This could be other people who work in the hospital system as well. Still, these are the people who are around it and presumably seeing firsthand what COVID could do. It, it just really surprises me. Well, absolutely. The interviews that I have been doing with ICU doctors, with emergency room doctors, you know, they're utterly heart-wrenching. I talked to some doctors recently about the fourth wave of the pandemic, and they, they, their voice, the despair in their voices when they talk about how, you know, the COVID patients they're seeing admitted and who are severely ill are unvaccinated and, you know, how preventable they feel that is and just the frustration um, they feel and the amount of tragedy that they've seen. I mean, tragedy is the word that they used. And, you know, it's just um, very difficult to equate that with um, people who work in the same environment um, choosing not, not to get vaccinated. Do we have any idea or is there any way to know of those 1,500, give or take, how many are what we'll call medical professionals, doctors, nurses, those who are literally working in the medical side and how many are staff who might be doing laundry or kitchen or whatever else? Unfortunately, we have no way of knowing that at this time. That that would be very helpful, um, I think. And I know the city uh, provided uh, its stats by department. Unfortunately, these numbers themselves were very difficult to get out of the hospitals. I spent weeks trying to get these numbers um, because they first asked uh, their staff to disclose in September. And, you know, it took us uh, until, uh, you know, middle of October uh, to get this information out of them. So, you know, just getting this information was difficult. It does make me wonder what the message, though, is. if Because you hear hospital, you hear medical staff. I don't know that everybody separates the, you know, the doctors and the people in the kitchens or whatever else. For those who are already skeptical and now they hear that 1,500 people in the Hamilton Hospital, Hamilton Health System haven't got it, you wonder, I mean, how is that going to convince anyone who's skeptical that they should get the shot? Well, I think what's really important to remember is that 1,500, you know, is out of, you know, more than um, 18,000, more more than, actually more than 19,000 staff and hospitals actually have a higher a much higher rate of vaccination than the population as a whole in Hamilton our uh, rate uh, for eligible residents to be fully vaccinated is 79% in the hospitals you know it's closer to 90% so you know by far uh, this group is a minority um, it's also important to remember that some of the people within this group so some within that number have either not disclosed or have exemptions um, so not mm-hmm. Everybody in that group has not received a shot. Um, We have no idea of the ones who haven't disclosed. You know, they could be vaccinated. They might not. We don't know why they're not disclosing. Um, So, you know, it could be a smaller number than um, what, um, what we know at the moment.
Scott Radley show here on 900 CHML. We are talking about the piece in the spec today uh, written by Joanna Frickitich. Nearly 1,500 Hamilton Hospital staff risk losing their jobs over COVID shots. The hospitals have deadlines when people who work there must disclose, must prove that they have had their vaccination unless they have some reasonable exemption. And thus far, there are 1,500 who have either not had the shot or not disclosed that they're told people are proven that they've had that shot uh joanna frickatich is with us and joanna i gotta say my first thought when i saw that headline and this may age me more than anything i had a flashback to ronald reagan and the air traffic controllers in the 1980s when he fired all of them that's obviously not going to happen here i mean they're the 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 hospitals are not going to fire 1500 people or whatever number but what could they do i mean realistically under the circumstances with what everyone's facing what could realistically happen well, uh, Hamilton Health Sciences is, and, and St. Joseph's are not alone um, in uh, getting tougher uh, with those who either haven't disclosed or aren't vaccinated. About 40% of Ontario's hospitals have gone this route, including many of the peer hospitals of, uh, of the Hamilton hospitals. And some of those have now started to terminate staff. So without a doubt, uh, staff could be terminated. So far, uh, it's small numbers, but other hospitals have already started down that road. Uh, in Hamilton, we're a good, uh, you know, at least probably six weeks uh, away from that at this point. And generally, they would start with leaves first before they actually terminate anyone. So they have a number of uh, disciplinary measures available to them. And among them is, you know, unpaid leaves and suspensions, those uh, types of things, you know, suspension starting at one day or three day or five day um, until they get to termination. They haven't really set out yet um, exactly how this will work, but without a doubt, uh, you know, staff could end up terminated in the end as they have uh, in other Ontario hospitals. But we just had somebody the other day on from St. Joe's and we were talking not about this. We were talking about the fact that, you know, now that COVID seems to be dropping a little bit, they're trying to get back to doing all the surgeries that they had put off and try and catch up. And it's a massive job to try and catch up, let alone still still dealing with COVID. How do you, how do you keep the system running if you are trying to do all that and saying this many people are on leave or fired or dismissed or whatever else, like it, it seems like you can't do both. It is a difficult balance, especially when you consider that uh, there are hundreds of unfilled jobs between Hamilton Health Sciences and St. Joseph's. It's been a long-standing problem before the pandemic, but like so many things, the pandemic has really exacerbated that. Um, plus, uh, the Ontario COVID-19 Science Advisory Table, uh, you know, recently warned that uh, burnout uh, has increased over the yes. pandemic to levels that pose a threat to maintaining a functioning healthcare workforce. So, you know, without a doubt, uh, it, it is definitely a challenge. Uh, CEO uh, Ron McIsaac of Hamilton Health Sciences has said, you know, that they will act prudently um, when they implement this policy and that uh, he is not actually concerned about uh, this policy creating difficulty with them staffing the hospital. Yeah, it just, it, it seems as though there is, uh, I'm not questioning their commitment to getting everybody vaccinated or trying to, but it seems they're going to be in a really awkward spot to try and crack down on the people who don't want to do this and still maintain the system. I mean, if assuming that a fair number still insist on not getting vaccinated, that, that's going to be a really tough balancing act. It is a really tough balancing act. But I think on the other side, you have to remember that, you know, hospitals have been very vulnerable to COVID. Uh, we uh, just had a deadly outbreak in the burn trauma unit at Hamilton General. Uh, it's unknown whether the vaccination status of anyone involved in that, but it shows 
that um, the you know the hospitals are even now still vulnerable to these types of outbreaks. The a nephrology unit is closed at uh, St. Joseph's right now for for um, an outbreak, and uh, Hamilton is one of only four public health units in the province with a vaccine rate uh, below 80 percent. Um, you know, Ontario's chief medical officer of health said has said repeatedly that he believes you know, uh, that patients have a right to be safe in hospitals and have a right to um, have healthcare workers uh, that they know are vaccinated and won't transmit the virus to them. There has been a lot of deaths uh, in hospitals from uh, COVID outbreaks. So, you know, it is a really hard balance because on one hand, you know, you have these staff shortages, you have this staff burnout, and this seems like a lot of staff to potentially lose. On the other hand, you know, patients need to have confidence in the healthcare system and need to feel safe uh, when they go there and have confidence that that's a place that is safe from COVID. A hundred percent right. And it, it almost makes me wonder, and, and look, you talk to people in the system and people going through the system, you do it all the time with your job. And I really wonder if you were to talk to someone who's been on the waiting list now for a surgery that they, you know, would affect their quality of life, may not lead them to die by not getting it, but you know, a knee replacement surgery or whatever else. If you said to them, are you willing to wait longer or are you willing to take the chance that somebody who treats you or is around you might not have been vaccinated? I'd love to know what those people would say at this point, if they're willing to risk it to get their surgery, or if they're adamant that they only want to be around people who are completely safe and they'll wait longer. I don't know the answer. Well, I think you also have to keep in mind that they might not have a choice. I mean, recently, uh, Hamilton General Hospital had to cancel all of its cardiac surgeries in one day uh, because of the strain being put on that hospital by unvaccinated COVID patients that were taking up um, tremendous amounts of ICU resources. So, you know, unfortunately, the situation is that when you have pockets of unvaccinated uh, people at a time when you have a highly transmissible variant like Delta, you know, that can that can really um, cause spikes in um, cases and those spikes in cases um, put strain on the hospital system and it doesn't take nearly as much as it did at the beginning of the pandemic to strain the system Um, you know because the system is trying to catch up on those backlogs and because it already has staff shortages you know so unfortunately um, like I said it's it's a very difficult position um, for you know it's a very difficult position either way because you know while you leave the hospital vulnerable to COVID and the community vulnerable to COVID, you can also end up with those surgeries being cancelled because of uh, unvaccinated COVID patients needing intensive care. It is is absolutely one of the more difficult positions to be in. There's no question about that. Uh, It's a great piece. People can read it at thespec.com. They can find it in the paper. Once again, the headline, nearly 1,500 Hamilton hospital staff risk losing their jobs over COVID shots. Uh, People should definitely read it and think about that. If you were waiting for a surgery or if you needed something at the hospital, are you willing to take the chance to get in there now? Or are you saying I'll wait longer if this were to happen because we have to lay people off or get rid of people? Man, what a decision. Joanna Frickatich, thanks for doing this today. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Space, a final frontier. These are the voyages of the starship Enterprise. Its five-year mission, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. 
William Shatner, Captain Kirk, boldly went where, well, lots of people have gone before, but not 90-year-olds who are not astronauts. No, 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 that's, that's a new one. Dr. Jesse Rogerson is with us. He is an assistant professor at York University, an astrophysicist, the guy we turn to whenever we have space stuff to deal with. Jesse, how are you today? Oh, he's not quite with us yet. All right, we will wait to get Jesse. Hailing but frequencies yes, you... are open, but we're uh, not receiving him yet. Not receiving yet. He hasn't beamed himself down yet. Okay. Uh, but no, William Shatner. I mean, this was a this was a cool day. Uh, you know, I was I was never a Star Trek guy, but it doesn't require you to be a science fiction Star Trek kind of person fan to appreciate the poetry of this a little bit that one of the all-time great science fiction shows that people loved that they turned the main character from that show into a real life astronaut for well for a few minutes which which is as i said off the top of the show uh, a few minutes longer than i've been in space and probably that you've been in space unless colonel hatfield is listening tonight and if you are hey welcome uh but most of us will never ever ever have something like this. It was uh, it was a very cool moment. Is Jesse with us? Still waiting. He still has not been beamed down. All right, we are having space problems today. Maybe he went up there too. But yeah, it's. I, I'll say this. I was very surprised of nothing else. I was very surprised. Maybe you were too by how quick the whole thing was. I I kind of imagined when when William Shatner and the rest of the crew went up there, that they were going to blast off and they were going to, I don't know, I guess I hadn't paid attention to the fine print. I thought they were going to hang around up there for a little while, but they went up and they came down. And it was, I, I was watching it on my computer this morning or this afternoon, whenever it was. And uh, it was, it was takeoff. And then it was, I, I again, I sort of halfway, when they went up and sort of went out of view, I wasn't really, paying that close attention. And then all of a sudden I hear them saying, and the booster rocket, whatever you call it is now landing. And it's very cool. If you've ever seen this, how the Jeff Bezos, Amazon rocket lands, this is not like in the old days when the rocket booster parts just fall off and crash into the ocean and maybe get retrieved or maybe don't. This thing is its own rocket ship. It, it blasts off. And then the part that separates comes back down upside down like the way it was going up it comes down the same way and then lands on a point it's like flipping it's like when you, you see those kids on youtube now flipping the bottle and it lands that's what the rocket does it's very cool that you can do this and that you could recycle this thing again and again and again presumably and the and by the looks of it when it touches down i mean we're talking about something that is landing with like delicacy it's just perfect right and perfect i mean didn't there's a target there and it hits it perfectly it's amazing it was amazing the whole thing is quite amazing really and, and the fact again that that you can the fact that we're at the point now in space travel where you can send a 90 year old man i think he's 90 right 89 90 whatever he is he's he's, he's getting up there the fact that we can now send a 90 year old man into space and he is healthy and he is fine when he returns and like literally no worse for the wear they talked to him afterwards and honestly it looked like he'd been in a cab ride through new york city i mean there was like no 
stress on him, no nothing. He was just talking away. Like it's just, it's amazing to think. Because think back again when you when you watch, and you probably have, when you watch those old films or whatever of the Apollo missions, of the Mercury missions, and the training those astronauts did, and the 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 strain that the training put on their bodies, and even the you know what now they were up obviously in space for days slightly different i understand but what they did to to prepare their bodies for the the rigors that they were going to face when they were up in space was amazing and here you've got a 90 year old guy and look he's 90 he's allowed to be 90 but not exactly the body of an adonis at this point He, he he's lived his life he's had a good life and he's you know he looks like a lot of the rest of us He's got a few little extra pounds around the middle. You don't have to now be the guy who is perfect or the woman, quite frankly, who is perfect, but that's newer. You don't have to be that guy. Neil Armstrong, look at Neil Armstrong. Now, they were always wearing their astronaut suits, but nobody had a pot belly. Look at those early astronauts. They were in peak, peak, peak physical condition because you had to be. Space travel required that kind of stuff back then. William Shatner not but it's not an insult it's not a shot at him it's a it's a it's a stunning recognition of how far space travel has come that we can now create rockets that someone who is a normal shaped human being for most of us can fit into them and the rocket can take off and they can do what they have to do and they can be up there and they i i the one thing that i would love and I'd be terrified of it, but to be on a rocket ship, the one thing, zero gravity would be a lot of fun. No question. But the one thing I would love that William Shatner, he, I don't think he, he had zero gravity for a few seconds, I believe, but not for very long. The one thing though, that I would love to do that he got to experience was that moment when this, when that rocket takes off and all of a sudden you've got that, those forces pushing you up. And suddenly, I think at one point they were going close to 3000 miles an hour. That would be really cool. I mean, that would be really cool. I'm not a speed demon. I'm not someone who drives like a maniac. I don't have a motorcycle and weave in and out of traffic. I, I None of that stuff. I don't have any of that need for speed, Tom Cruise, Top Gun kind of thing. Uh, none of that. But uh, that would be very cool. That would be, to, to be able to be, it looked like lying there. Now, it's, it, again, it was hard to see. Th- that's something that I hope they got somewhere. And I hope because they didn't have any camera inside the capsule, at least that they showed us. I truly hope that they did have cameras in there. So at some point we're going to be able to see the view from in there. Surely in 2021, if you can shoot video of the rocket when it is 250,000 feet above earth's crust, which they were, you were still able to see it on the TV. Surely if you can do that, you can put a camera in the cockpit and you can have images that are collected. I'm hoping they did because I want to see what that was like inside. But it looked like all the guys, they weren't even sitting upright. It looks like from what you could see through the windows when they landed, it looked like they were in a reclined position the whole time. And could you imagine? It would be like you lie on your couch at home. They strap you down to the couch. They put you in a really cool blue suit. I guess give them a helmet, although I didn't see if William Shatner was wearing a helmet or not. I don't even know if he had to wear a helmet in there anymore. Maybe it's so modern that you just lie on this leather chair and away you go. And it's like, as I say, being at home on the couch, but then just, and all that force beneath you, just pushing you up towards the sky. That boy, it would be, it would be very, very cool. What we 
I want to hear more from him because I think that he'll probably have some interesting observations as a guy who's never done this before. I'll say this though, Jeff Bezos. All right. Um, the guy's got all the money in the world. When, when they land and William Shatner is talking, I don't know if anyone was watching this today and he comes out of the shuttle or out of the cockpit and William Shatner starts talking in this pouring out his heart, giving this deep philosophical thought about what this just meant to him and what he saw and all the rest. If you're Jeff Bezos, maybe listen to William Shatner as opposed to, hey, give me the champagne and then just start spraying at everyone. And then all of a sudden William Shatner stops talking and looks like, are you serious? We just paid like a billion bucks to send me up in this into space. And now you want to spray champagne instead of listening to what I had to say about it? Really? Uh, I think when Jeff Bezos watches the video of that afterwards, he's going to go, okay, next time I think maybe a little more listening to the guy that we chose to go up there to hear what he had to say and a little less of just being a frat boy spraying the champagne. We can spray the champagne later or we can spray the champagne before. If you watch the video, you'll see exactly what I mean. Just seemed like it was, you know, a little out of time under the circumstances, a little off time under the circumstances. Apparently, Jesse Rogerson has never been beamed down back to Earth yet, so we are going to have to talk to Jesse next time. Unfortunate. I would have loved to have heard what Jesse had to say about it, but we will definitely get him another time to talk about these things. History is made by stupid people. Clever people wouldn't even try. If you want a place in the history books, then do something dumb before you die. 649 on a Wednesday evening hump day as we launch into not Ben's story of the day, not Will's story of the day. We're going through the roster of people who are on the board to help me as we do this show. Matt's story of the day. We have a fresh bit of operational meat back at the studio today. Uh, that's probably not the nicest way. Yeah, so to, to speak. I am 33 years old, so... <laughs> Matt is on the board today. Welcome aboard, Matt. First time doing the show. Glad you're able to join us. So here's how Matt's story of the day works for those who have never been here, including Matt, as it turns out. Yes. I am going to give Matt three stories from around the world of the unusual variety, and then he will, using whatever technique or thought process or criteria, whatever, he will decide however he wishes with no rules what is Matt's story of the day. All right? Yes. Very simple. Yes. Straightforward. All right, let's start okay. with this one. We've just been talking about William Shatner in space and all kinds of space stuff. This story comes from BC. It was last week. There was a woman who was asleep in her bed, fast asleep, and all of a sudden she hears this enormous, gigantic crash and wakes up and there's a hole in her roof above her bed. And when she looks at the pillow six inches from her head, there is a giant rock on the pillow, which of course she has no idea how it got there. She calls the police. The police start calling around saying to, there was a, I guess some construction or something, some blasting going on nearby. They asked if they were blasting in the middle of the night. Nope. Construction. Nope. Nobody vandalized the house. Turns out people in that area had spotted a streak of light across the sky and a sonic boom. She had a meteorite crash through her roof and miss her head by six inches onto her pillow. That's when you know it's not your time to die. I would suggest, I, I, Matt, I don't know if you've ever had a near-death experience. I have not. 
I have not, but I would think that if you awoke to find a meteorite or whatever the proper term is for this, I'm calling it a meteorite. There are probably space people who will tell me I've got the wrong word for it here. But nonetheless, <laughs> if you wake up and find a meteorite that has with a hole in your roof and it's six inches, you that's the day you go buy a lottery ticket or something because there is no way you're dying. That well, here's day. the thing. Are you going to can you monetize this at all? Can you can you can you make money off of this? This is my hundred percent. Okay. Oh, okay. yeah. You need 100%. to fix that roof first off. First <laughs> well, off, well, she's she's got insurance. Okay. She's got insurance, but yeah, you could. Uh, I there got to be people who would want to buy a space rock, right? Or even a piece of it. Yeah. Like, how, how, did did you say how big it was? Like big enough to big, big enough to get through the roof. I did not say how big it was, okay. but let me tell you this: um, it it would for an adult man. This would be big enough that you would barely be able to grab it with your hand and throw it at someone. Like it's a big chunk of <laughs> okay. rock. Okay, yeah. So that would potentially be a lot of pieces. Is oh what yeah. You're saying a lot of oh, pieces yeah. you could auction off. A lot of pieces, and and as I look at this rock, her head could have been in a lot of pieces. Six inches yes. different, and frankly, <laughs> she would not have had a head left. I mean, not to be too blunt, but this thing coming in at that speed, holy cow, she would have been. It would not have been good. All right. Story number two, we're going down to Huntsville, Alabama, and I'm staring at a, I'm staring at a mugshot of a guy who ended up going to prison. Turns out he was a longtime Alabama sheriff who got busted for corruption, doing some things down there that he shouldn't have been doing. Anyway, as he got out, I guess he showed up in jail or something. He was in the holding cell and then got to court, whatever. All he wanted to talk about in court was the jail where he'd been. And the reason is because for 35 years, this had been the jail that he ran. And all he wanted to do was talk about how great the food was, how good the accommodations were, how well the staff treated him. This guy was taking his jail visit as an opportunity to go on. It's almost like he was doing a an online poll, you know, checklist thing of his jail because people might want to come and visit it. That If, if you can go to jail and come out with that attitude, probably not what exactly what we want our prisoners to have but you know can't be that bad i don't think i'm qualified for this uh for, for this one to comment on this one i'm not a big uh, prison expert no n- nor am i never been in prison but he's talking he raving about the food the food was fantastic he says but then he says i've been eating it for 38 years so you know he, he's kind of used to this one but I, I don't know matt if i if i go to jail i'm not sure the first thing i do when i come out is rave about the accommodations Probably not. I mean, he could have been raving about his workout routine. I know that's a big thing. <laughs> yeah, well, I just, how bad is the rest of your life's accommodations? <laughs> Being stuck in jail is a great time. What's your house look like if j- maybe he was on the other side of the bed with that moon rock that came through the ceiling? I don't know. Oh, to be honest, uh, he probably lived in the jail as it was, maybe. Maybe. Probably had a bed there, an office there. and just yeah. Was, yeah, maybe. I could see maybe. that. Story number three, and this one is, this one, uh, boy, um, this this one, there's an angry husband involved in this story. There's an angry wife involved in this story, too. Uh, it's from TikTok. It's from Indonesia. There is a woman in Indonesia who, she posted this on TikTok, so, uh, you know, unless it's made, unless it's completely falsified, but it sounds like it's not. It sounds like someone has confirmed this. She was really upset because her husband kept saying that he would clean the aquarium that they have in the house and he never got around to cleaning the aquarium. So I guess she was on the hook and, you know, thinking he was really lazy and didn't want to have to do her husband's job for him, do his work for him. 
Well, in let me before I say what she did in the aquarium, he had a what is the fish called here? He had a dum, 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 I can't find the name now. An arowana fish, an A R O W A N A, an arowana fish. And if you see the picture, it kind of looks like a carp, only it's way more colorful and it's much more pleasant to look at than a carp. And it's not, it's not a carp. Anyway, these fish over there cost as much as $300,000. $300,000 for a pet fish. And he was not taking care of the tank. So, what did she do? She she posted on TikTok the video of her taking out the fish and frying it up for dinner. <laughs> but it it was still good before that, though. Is that what you're saying? Like it was still good oh, it was fine in those conditions. No, no, it was the 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 aquarium needed some cleaning, but the fish right. was totally healthy and totally fine until she threw it in some melted butter and see, fried it up. See, that has to be why day. it's so much because every fish I've ever had has either jumped out or or just uh, <laughs> passed passed on. She deep fried the fish to teach her husband a lesson and posted, um, my husband kept promising to clean the aquarium after I told him to. I thought it would be delicious if I fried it. And then she showed another one already cooked and ready to eat. And then she shows herself eating it. Anyway, he um, uh, he says that he's looking to go get himself another arowana fish. I'm betting that he'll clean the tank from now on, though. I'm betting that he will get around to do it this time. You can't, you just can't afford two $300,000 dinners. You know, I think that would be enough for me. Although, you know, to be honest, I would not be in that situation in the first place. So that's a big reach for me. But uh, yeah, that's that's a few steps more than I would go. Well, think, I mean, think of it if it's not a fish. Think of it if somehow you won the lottery and you bought yourself a Lamborghini. Right. And you said, I'm going to go clean the garage. And you didn't. And so your partner said, you know what? I'm going to take a tire iron to this thing because you didn't clean the garage. You might be See, a I feel like little that's, miffed. That's a little bit more realistic of a thing. Not to say that I would have that kind of car, but <laughs> no. that, 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 that's good. That is more realistic for me. Thanks. So would you say your story of the day today, Matt, is the woman in British Columbia who had a space rock crash through her ceiling and land six inches from her head? Would it be the sheriff who spent a couple weeks in his own prison and came out raving about how well the facilities were? Or will it be the wife who cooked up the $300,000 pet fish of her husband because she was mad at him? I'm going to have to say uh, story one. I don't know if it's the uh, bias of it being the first one and it's my first show, but I, I think I, I think I got to go with Space Rock on this one. I, this, this woman, as I say, this if I'm her and I've just had this happen, I am buying lottery tickets. I am... I am crossing the highway with my eyes closed. I mean, you are, you're impenetrable at this point. Nothing can happen to you. If you've got if a space rock meteor has missed your head by six inches, you, you're, you're, nothing can happen to you. Anyway, there you go. Matt's story, the, Matt's first one. Matt's story, they make a little note of that one and uh, keep it for, for history. Hour number two of the Scott Radley show here on 900 CHML. Thanks for joining us this hour. We are glad you are here. Lots to get to, including at the bottom of this hour, we are going to be talking about some famous, famous movies that are based on books where the end of the movie, the ending and the way they kind of made it a happy ending, nothing like the way the book was written. Most of these books, very dark. Uh, the movie people decided to try and make it a little nicer, but you may be shocked by what the real originally conceived endings were to some of the favorite movies of yours where it started. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, and we're, and we're going to talk about gas prices 
in a moment, not just gas prices, not the gas at the pumps, not, I mean, that's part of it, but what you're going to pay apparently this winter to heat your home, uh, you you may want to sit down because what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes, uh, this may cause you some serious consternation. I know it did me. I mean, we are, um, we're heading into some interesting times. Let us put it that way. All right, let me give you your quiz question. Here we go with the quiz question tonight. Uh, Matt is in, by the way. First time doing the show, Matt is. So when you give Matt a call, say hi to him, introduce yourself, give him your name, give him your guess, welcome him aboard. End of the show, we'll get to the people who got this one right. We've been talking about space travel all day today because of William Shatner, obviously. So we've got a space-ish quiz question for you today. In the movie Apollo 13, remember that one? Yeah. In the movie Apollo 13, the three actors who were portraying the astronauts who were stuck in the capsule floating around in space who couldn't get back to Earth, the three actors were Tom Hanks, Bill Paxton, and who was the third one? Who was the third actor who was portraying the astronaut in Apollo 13, Tom Hanks, Bill Paxton, the guy who was in Titanic later, and who? Who's the third one? 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Those are the numbers. Matt is on. Give Matt your name. Give him your guess. Tell him what the answer to that one is. We'll get to that one at the end of the show. As I said a moment ago, we are heading into some interesting times because well let me read let me tell you about how interesting this is by reading the headline to a piece that was in the Toronto Star this week it's going to cost a lot more to heat your home this winter and it didn't have to be this way how much more well let me tell you as I said a moment ago you may want to sit down and you may want to put your head between your knees and assume the crash position Because apparently, according to this piece, we can expect our heating bills this winter to go up by between 16 and 19%. More, I suppose, if we get the long, frigid, nasty winter that we keep hearing is coming our way. And why is all this happening? Well, let us turn to a guy that uh, he's a familiar voice because he's someone we turn to when we want to talk about fuel and gas and energy issues because he knows what he's talking about. His name is Dan McTagg. He's the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Dan, thanks for doing this tonight. How are you? I'm doing fine. Thank you. And uh, just enjoying this warm weather. Uh, yeah, for now. <laughs> we don't wind up uh, with that, uh, what I had predicted, uh, oh gosh, uh, a month ago that we were looking at a doubling of price and it's going to be a lot higher than 19%. Uh, I think that's very uh, conservative, but now I digress. Uh, there's some pretty serious facts. More importantly, uh, when you just look at the numbers um, from last year, Scott, you look at, uh, you know, this time last year, a benchmark price for determined to be in MMBTU was $1.92. It's now five fifty. So it doesn't really take a lot to, you know, know that, uh, you know, even though distribution costs and storage costs might and taxes may make up half the price, a doubling of the other price means you're looking at a 30, 40 percent increase, which means if you paid a thousand bucks last year, uh, last winter for your natural gas, look at 1500 this year. So an additional 500 bucks. And that's probably a conservative estimate. 
Yeah, and uh, Dan, I, I thank you because uh, there are now living rooms around the greater Hamilton area with coffee stains on the carpet from people spitting out their, their post-dinner coffee going, <laughs> what did you just say? Uh, okay, wh- wh- why is this happening then? What has all of a sudden gone on that we are now staring down the barrel of this kind of increase? No production. Uh, they haven't put a lot in storage. We have a couple places here in Canada Alberta, AECO, and uh, Dawn, Ontario, which is near Sarnia, where we uh, actually inject in the ground uh, the supply that we're going to need for the following year. And those supplies are down about to about five or six year lows, and uh, overall, uh, natural gas is probably down about 18% uh, in inventory. So that's why people are very concerned, not so much about, you know, we know winter's coming, but if it's a particularly cold winter, you're going to draw down even further on the uh, on a dwindling supply. So now there's a number of reasons why that's that way. Um, much of it to do with, uh, you know, extraordinary demand. And here I mean commercial demand. You know, natural gas isn't just a heating fuel. It's also used in uh, making vaseline, uh, plastics. It's made uh, to create and to provide uh, basis for ammonia, which we use for fertilizers in, you know, very important in our agricultural sector. So, its place in society is growing in its importance, not just in terms of its cleanliness, is, is, uh, is really something to behold. But here's the problem. Over the past, uh, I'd say, five or seven years, there's been a concerted effort, not just to block pipelines in Canada, but to actually discourage investors. Uh, and this is led by, you know, Tides, Greenpeace and others, uh, even banks from financing, uh, lending, capital to uh, projects that are both oil or natural gas based and it is a very successful campaign so much so that it's fair to say that probably 15 to 20 percent of what would otherwise be available is no longer available as we choke this industry believing somehow there's a massive replacement there isn't and uh, you know it's uh, for i've tried to tell these people during the election well before the election I was pleading with people, do I have to shake your head and tell you this is a problem? Oh, no, no, everything's fine. The green revolution. Uh, well, now it's about uh, to really hit us all. And uh, not like it is in Europe, not like it is in Asia, but uh, by North American standards for a region that is so blessed with an abundance of energy, cheap, affordable, reliable energy, we've uh, we've done significant damage and we're going to be paying for it in ways that many of us probably haven't even conceived of. And, I, you know, while I talk about natural gas, I, you know, I made the point last week, two weeks ago, we're heading for record prices on gasoline, diesel, aviation fuel, jet fuel. Um, take your pick. Uh, there's no really good news out there. By the way, propane, we're down 31% in stocks and inventories. Uh, so there is no easy solution to this. It is going to be literally, Scott, the winter of our discontent. Okay, let's go back to something very basic. And this may be so basic that, Dan, you shake your head when I ask you this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um we, as you just said, we have tons of natural gas. We have tons of ability in this country underneath us to get this stuff. Even if we don't have, even if we stopped or tried to stop producing pipelines to get the oil to the export market, how come we can't produce enough in Canada for at least ourselves to be able to have the gas that we need? Mostly because here in Ontario, we've now begun to rely on the U.S. for a lot of our product. Uh, I'd say almost all of our natural gas, or at least a good part of our natural gas here in Ontario, comes from the Marcellus Shale, just south of the border in Pennsylvania and Ohio, uh, in that region. So that's one of the main reasons why we've seen, uh, you know, rather dramatic increase 
uh, in um, or rather uh, use in U.S. products. Now, the Americans are having trouble. Again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, they can't get enough permits to drill new holes because it's not a static thing where they just put a hole in the ground and, you know, over a year or so, uh, you know, uh, products come out of the ground. They have to move these things around on a sale facility. And that facility, of course, uh, is both expensive to run and it means that, uh, you know, it's extraordinarily uh, capital intensive uh, to, uh, to, to say the least. Uh, so, you know, Western Canadian natural gas, we have plenty of it, but the problem is we cannot get it at out to eastern Canada, save and accept, uh, uh, you know, when there is a, a viable alternative or when we have the market is ready to say, hey, we're going to pay you all this amount of money to bring it out here. But we also have a pipeline capacity problem. And for, if, for those of us who forget, just before the pandemic, you remember the, rail, the railroads were closed with protests, uh, you know, indigenous right. protests? Yep. And that was really over a pipeline, a natural gas pipeline, making its way through British Columbia. We can't build a pipeline in this country, so we can't respond to the demand. And even if we were to have that pipeline, we can't get enough money to incentivize business, much less pay the business to do their job of extracting and getting natural gas out of the ground. It's absolutely insane. And yet you've got the Mark Carneys of this world, the guy who wants to be the liberal leader of the part of, of you know, to replace Mr. Trudeau at some point. Uh, he's the UN's uh, point man for uh, disinvestment. We call it ESG. You know, people may not be familiar with that term, but they should. It's called environment, social, and governance. And it's really designed to say, hey, we're going to reduce our carbon footprint. To do that, we're going to starve capital from companies that are producing the energy that has given Canada a standard of living, its affordability, and cheap, reliable energy. And so... It's a big, big problem, and uh, for my friends on the green side who thought nothing of it, this is probably a nightmare uh, as well for them because they realize when the public gets to the point where they cannot afford to heat or drive or get to work or have our transportation grid up and running, a lot of people are bashed back on this, uh, this green transition, which, as it turns out, is far too premature. Well, yeah, and, and I mean, look, I want to get into that in a second with the time we have, but there's something else here, and it, it, I mean, it's I think it's a legitimate question, and that is if the price of home heating fuel goes way through the roof, people may start to look for other options, but I don't know what those other options are, because here in Ontario, anyway, the price of electricity, you, you, nobody's going to heat their home with electricity, I don't think, because you go bankrupt, and I just, I didn't even realize this, I'm so far behind the times, obviously, I read something last week where... There was an article where I was reading that if I decide to heat my home with wood by burning wood, I'm actually doing more damage to the economy than if I burn natural gas. Burning wood is bad for. What are my other options other than I guess yeah. layering? <laughs> you know, <laughs> there aren't many, and here's what makes things a little weird. Um, we all have to agree. And look, Europe right now is in a funk, especially the UK and Germany. Businesses are shutting down. Utilities can't afford to, you know, to bring on any new customers. Uh, they're at the mercy of now Russia and so-called Nord Stream, uh, second natural gas pipeline. When you have Russia uh, by the throat, Putin in particular, you know, uh, you you really have to wonder uh, just how far off the cliff we've gone. There is really no alternative to natural gas or to uh, heating oil, uh, furnace oil, which is all very derivative of diesel. Uh, or propane. Other than that, uh, you can try electricity, but my God, Scott, 17 cents a kilowatt hour at peak. Uh, you know, it, it, it's it's not viable. And remember, the provincial government's having to incur a $6.5 billion a year debt just to shield us from the 
the effects of the Green Energy Act of the uh, government in 2010 that thought it was a brilliant idea uh, to attract people to build windmills and solar, you know, solar farms uh, at uh, 15 times the market uh, market rate. So we know that on days where it's cold and there's no wind and there's no sun, you also have no electricity from these reliables. So short of burning wood, your your option is to pay a lot more to keep yourself warm. And I think this is uh, this is truly a wake up call uh, for most of us who've just nothing of it and saying, oh, I don't mind paying my little bit for the climate. Well, you're not going to do a damn thing for the climate. We're one of the cleanest countries in the world when it comes to energy. But beyond that, I think something far more serious is is taking place, and that's you have municipal politicians, your politicians, your uh, your councillors here in Hamilton, cheerfully voted to reduce and to get rid of and urge the provincial government to shut down natural gas plants, which are desperately needed when we don't have enough electricity driven by either hydro or nuclear we are shutting down nuclear plants. My old riding of Pickering, the uh, uh, the nuclear plants there will be shutting down. You desperately need these natural gas plants. And you've got <laughs> councillors walk around saying, oh, we can get the electricity from Quebec. Baloney. Quebec doesn't have spare capacity. In fact, on a net basis, we ship more electricity to Quebec than electricity comes uh, from Quebec into Ontario. Worse, we're giving it away at substantially discounted uh, rates. Uh, so, you know... Uh, we're selling our, our, you know, our excess that we don't need to Michigan and to other states uh, at, you know, a fraction of the cost, which is hurting and burdening consumers in ways that we can't possibly imagine. You've asked a good question. I can't give a short answer to it simply because uh, I think there is so much to unpack, and it's a very dangerous position that we found ourselves in, and it's been widely exposed by what's going on around the world. We've gone too fast on this climate nonsense. Well, and, and to that point, there's a line here I want to read from, uh, it's by David Olive uh, in The Star, this yep. piece uh, that led to this discussion. Here's what he writes. With only a touch of alarmism, some experts in global energy trends are warning that today's sharply rising energy prices worldwide are a taste of similar or worse energy crises we will endure over the next two decades as we transition to clean energy. And to your point, I think that there are an awful lot of people listening right now who say, yes, I believe in clean energy. I support the idea of clean energy and of clean green plans and everything else. I'm not sure that they all support the idea to the point that it's going to cost them hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars because we're doing this before the option is available. I mean, if there was a, if there was a switch that you could flick, I think a lot of people would say, I'll do that in a second. But uh, listening to you, I, I don't think there is that switch you can flick. We are years from being able to do something like that. Well, look, here's the deal. Um, we are a province that is the cleanest when it comes to generation of electricity. We've had hydro and the Tesla facilities working down the atom back for over a century. We've had nuclear reactors. The first commercial fleet of nuclear reactors, starting my old riding Pickering, as I mentioned earlier, Darlington, and, of course, uh, the Bruce. We have been 82% of the electricity that we generate is clean. So I think people have to sort of, I know history isn't very, uh, isn't very popular these days being taught in school, but teachers should do a damn better job. And I'm, I'm appealing to them to please smarten up, uh, tell people uh, the truth about Ontario's uh, clean energy. Because the, the only other thing we have is 1% or 2% produced by massively expensive and inefficient windmills and solar panels the other 15, 16%, and thank God they were there uh, during the summer when we hit 30, 35 degrees here just a few weeks ago. 
we have natural gas plants as backup. That's the only form of energy we're using. We don't burn coal, we don't burn oil, we don't burn garbage to uh, to generate uh, power. So, look, we are punishing ourselves recklessly, and we are you know twisting ourselves into financial pretzels because someone tells us that we're not clean. Push back on those people saying that, and tell them, ask them to prove their their credentials. Look out into the Hamilton Harbor. Look into Lake Ontario. Go back 50 years ago. You want to talk pollution? <laughs> this place was not a great place to hang out as a kid. I grew up here, so. My hope is that uh, we take stock and inventory of the great clean energy that we've done and that we don't take it for granted. Because by taking it for granted and allowing uh, you know, uh, elites to, 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 uh, to tell us we're doing a bad job and that we should, you ought to pay more, we're destroying the very birthright that I think is given to every person who comes to this province and to this country. Clean energy is affordable energy. It's the way in which we maintain our, our enviable standard of living, like it or not. Yeah, and, and we only have a couple of minutes, but I mean, and we're not even talking about all the other things because, you know, if, if gas prices start to skyrocket, it's not just heating your home, it's driving trucks that bring goods to Canada and food to Canada. Like everything is suddenly going to continue to go up and up and up in price. And I know that in the last election that we just had, the federal election, either number one or number two on almost every poll of what is the most important issue affordability was right at the top. And I'm, I'm struggling to understand how we can be arguing for affordability and then be saying, but we're okay with everything going up in price because that, that, that to me is a conflict. It, it just doesn't make a lot yeah. of sense. I think affordability was only housing affordability. Very few people took into consideration uh, what was in, what was coming. I think the prime minister was bright and calling an election early before, you know, this stuff started to hit the fan. And now we're here, and real affordability is forcing. I mean, Scott, I got to tell you, I'm doing in the past week 170 interviews. I would say three quarters of those interviews are interviews I haven't done in five or six years. It's almost as if many of my old friends in the mainstream media, present company accepted, uh, you know, just didn't give a damn, didn't think it was a big issue. More important to, to you know to to talk about climate catastrophe and climate alarmism rather than dealing with some fundamentals about uh, the realities, it's not going to get bad in 20 or 30 years from now. More importantly, you know, you can't destroy a good economy and destroy people's ability to make ends meet uh, and, you know, force people to flee while uh, to other jurisdictions where they can get a job. While countries like China are saying, hey, <laughs> we're building another 600 coal plants. Uh, or, you know, uh, when you have uh, other nations that have demonstrated that they're on their knees because, They've put far too much emphasis in these unreliable forms of energy, which are decades away from being proven uh, as uh, as as uh, powerful to displace nuclear, to di- displace uh, the effect of uh, the important uh, benefits of natural gas and oil. And so, look, uh, there's fantasy and then there's reality. And I think we've got to start to switch back as Canadians to reality. If not, then uh, watch your pocketbook because... Mm. Uh, you're, it's about, you're about to be swindled and conned by uh, uh, climate, uh, you know, uh, activists who've got, a co- uh, co- got control of our economy and uh, what's in our best interest. And we didn't even talk about the added taxes that are coming as well on all this stuff. So that uh, that will join in as well. Um, just before I let you go, yeah. you said something a few minutes ago that um, that I really do wonder about, and that is, do you think that somehow for those who for those who maybe, you know, support the idea of a clean economy, and I don't know who doesn't, or an environment, I don't know who doesn't support the idea of a clean environment, but at the same time, doesn't believe that you do it by obliterating everything that's been there before. 
Do you yeah. think that this winter could somehow be a good thing? Because even though it may be very painful for a lot of people, that will make people's eyes open up and go, wait a second, wait a second. We got to yeah. rethink this whole thing. Could, could this be a blessing in disguise? What might happen? Maybe. And it might get and prompt people to do what they did 20 years ago when things get really tough and energy prices went up. You know, I was responsible for not one, but two energy home heating rebates for Canadians. So I'm not talking through my hat here about how, how important I think this is. This isn't about making consumers richer. This is really about ensuring that we have that fine balance between our responsibilities to our future, to our soil, to our air, to our uh, posterity, to our next generation, while at the same time not denying the needs we, 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 we must accept in order to make a living to continue to, to thrive and survive. And so I, I think that it may very well be a turning point. But my God, i got to tell you, when the maiden parties in the House of Commons, all represented there, continue to double down on trendy ways to find cute ways to come up with not just one, but two carbon taxes. And here's the second one we didn't talk about, the clean fuel standard, which on December the 1st, 2022, will raise the price of gasoline by 16 cents a litre or more with HST. Uh, when we, hopefully, we will get some politicians finally recognizing that, you know, maybe it's time to spend a bit more time with issues that are bread and butter as opposed to trying to find cute ways uh, to uh, get extra brownie points when they hit international, uh, you know, meetings every year or two uh, that uh, are really designed uh, to uh, get the economies of the world to do things that they ought not to be doing uh, at a time in which, uh, you know, you're asking the world to make transitions to things that simply do not exist, not without reducing and harming the population. Dan McTague, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Uh, we always appreciate you, including us, in your 175 interviews this week. Thank, thank you for doing this. <laughs> always good to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me again. Have a great evening. Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. Here is your quiz question this evening. In the movie Apollo 13, the movie Apollo 13, because we're talking about space stuff today with William Shatner. In the movie Apollo 13, the three actors portraying the astronauts who were stuck in the capsule flying around Earth were Tom Hanks, Bill Paxton, who went on to be the guy in Titanic, remember with the, he was the explorer trying to find the diamond. Tom Hanks, Bill Paxton, and who was the third actor portraying one of the three astronauts in the capsule floating around that is your quiz question today 905-645-3221 or star 9900 matt is in today first day on so say hi to matt give him your name give him your guess end of the show we'll see who was able to figure this one out quick break and when we come back we are going to be talking about some movies that ended way differently than the books that inspired them did stay with us Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. Came across this list today, last night maybe, last night, late last night, it may have been into today, doing some work and found this. And it was, I, I was, I was blown away going over this because, I mean, I've read a lot. You've probably read a lot. You've probably also watched a lot of movies, but I didn't realize how many big time famous movies that you've seen that were based on books took the ending of the book that I guess in most cases was 
not really palatable or didn't leave people walking out of the theaters with a perky, upbeat, happy feeling. And so decided we got to change the ending of this movie to make it more acceptable or at least happier or less bleak. I will explain some of them. We're going to bring Matt in. Matt's on the desk today. Matt is going to come in here. So Matt, you've seen Forrest Gump, I assume. You ever, you ever seen the movie Forrest Gump? I have. I, I actually was going to mention this, but I'll let you do it. Well, no. So Forrest Gump. So do you know how the book ends in Forrest Gump? I do. And I know that there's a sequel as well. So, okay. So why don't so if you know it, tell me what happens in the end of Forrest Gump and then, and we'll see if we match up here with the story we've got. Okay. I forgot, but <laughs> I, I knew, <laughs> I knew more about the sequel because the sequel to me was a little bit more interesting. The sequel book. I mean, I don't even, I didn't even know. I got to go find the book now, but so apparently in the book and I had not read the Forrest Gump book, the original one, but so you, you know what happens in the movie? He, he meets up with Jenny again, discovers that they had a child together. Now it's sad because Jenny dies, but Forrest goes on to have a nice life raising his young son. That's how Forrest Gump ends. It's very heartwarming. And then the feather falls from the sky and the music starts and everyone's happy in the book. He, it kind of ends when he's still working for the Bubba Gump Shrimp Shrimp Company and he becomes very despondent about the job because it's too much and it's ruining his life. And so he gives it up and ends up living on the street with a legless Vietnam vet. I assume that's Major Dan um, and an orangutan, believe it or not. Um, And then, and Forrest Gump is not like a friendly night. He's friendly and stuff, but he's, he's more unusual even than we get in the movie with Tom Hanks. And of course, Jenny and Forrest don't have a child together, that part of the story. So much happier kind of ending in the movie than in the book. Not to derail things, but I will tell you the sequel, the book is basically dumping on the movie. Oh, that's what the whole, from what I understand, that's what the book sequel is about. Just dumping on, on the movie and how stupid it was. So the book was written <laughs> after the movie. Yes, wasn't it actually like, it was. Oh, yes. Okay. I, I, I'm guessing in response to it. Well, now I've got to go. Now I've got to go find that book. It's definitely a rabbit hole worth going down. I will definitely do that. Okay. The Hunchback of Notre Dame, a Disney movie. I mean, how bad could the subject of a Disney movie be? Well, if you stick around for a few minutes, you'll understand uh, bad. And this is not. This is not the only one. But here, so in the movie, in the movie, there's all kinds of things that happen, and the Hunchback is kind of a creepy dark character but ultimately um he ends up being the hero and accepted into society esmeralda who she goes off and marries someone else but nonetheless he is the the hunchback is seen as as i say the hero of the thing and comes out as the good guy he's sort of the the boo radley of to kill a mockingbird if you will everything turns out in the end he's the good guy the book from victor hugo so esmeralda is charged with attempted murder and sentenced to hang Quasimodo tries to save her by giving her safety sanctuary in the cathedral, but she gets turned over to the guards. She ends up in the gallows. Quasimodo pushes Frollo off the top of the cathedral and murders him. And then Quasimodo disappears only to be found later on. His decayed body is in a mass grave locked in an embrace with Esmeralda's corpse. Well, that's lovely. <laughs> that, that's not too absolutely disturbing but you know i guess disney can't go with that ending thankfully and yet even that is not quite as bleak as believe it or not the little mermaid 
The Little Mermaid is, there are a few movies that Disney took the source material from that you shake your head and you go, how did Disney decide this was something they were going to turn into a Disney movie? Now they did it because they made the ending happy and took out some of the really bad stuff. But you know how The Princess Bride ends. I'm sure I had a daughter who was, when she was very young, we watched the, I've seen The Princess Bride probably 74,000 times. I, I can I can sing the songs backwards. I'm not going to. But Ariel and Prince Eric, they she becomes a person. She becomes a human when she leaves the sea. They get married. They take out the evil sea witch once and for all. King Triton gives his blessing and they live happily ever after. Not so much in the book. Not only does Ariel not end up with the prince, he marries someone else, but because she's transformed from a mermaid into a human, she now lives in constant agonizing pain never gets her voice back and eventually dies of a broken heart. Now she gets to be an airborne spirit with the chance after 300 years of doing good works to become a mermaid again. But nonetheless, Matt, that slightly different ending than in the Disney movie. She's 300 years. That's, that's a little tedious. A little I'm just tedious. Say that. Uh, let me skip through some of these ones here. Did you ever see the movie? Uh, da, 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 let's see. Which one should we go to? Oh, The Natural. Have you ever seen The Natural? Gee, it's been a while and it was on TV, so it might not have been the whole thing. One of the great baseball movies. Robert Redford as Roy Hobbs. A phenomenal movie. If you've never seen The Natural and one of the all-time great endings, which is what we're talking about. One of the great movie endings with just a, a stirring score that comes up at the at the moment of his greatest triumph uh i can't go through what the whole movie is about you have to watch the natural and you really should nonetheless in the movie roy hobbs and if you've never seen it plug your ears for a second so we don't give away the ending here but he has been shot he his career has been cut short but he comes back his bat his wonder boy bat has broken he has to use another bat now if you don't know what i'm talking about it doesn't make any sense but believe me it does if you watch the movie he staggers up to home plate with his side still bleeding through the band-aid and in the ninth inning he hits a home run that goes right into the lights and bursts the lights and they win and blah 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 in the book not so much in the book not only is he shot we we had that part already um but he accepts $35,000 to throw the final game of the season like the Black Sox scandal then he changes his mind when he realizes that he's going to be a father but he strikes out in his final at bat. The team doesn't win the pennant. And now that he strikes out, he goes through the rest of his life with the fear of being banned from baseball because he realizes that at any moment, somebody could find out that he took that money, even though he gave it back and believes that he threw that last game. That's dark. That, that's, that's not nearly as exciting. I don't know who wrote that one. Well, I do know who wrote it, but Bernard Malamud. He had some darkness going on there. Uh, let us see here. Uh, don't know. You wouldn't have seen that. Oh, all right. Here's one. Have you ever seen First Blood? Have you ever seen the first Rambo movie? See, again, it would have been the same thing. I don't know. Although, I don't, would that be on TV? I don't know. It's been a long it time It would have though. been. This is a long okay. time ago. This okay. is like 1982, 83, yeah. 82. Uh, Sylvester Stallone, Brian Dennehy, David Caruso, who went on to be in NYPD Blue and then in uh, uh, CSI Miami, he was in that one. Anyway, so the story is about John Rambo, Sylvester Stallone, who's a Vietnam vet who wanders into town and the police there rough him up and he escapes and goes into the wilderness and um, fights them and people die and it's an action movie. And in the end, 
his old sergeant, his old platoon leader comes out and uh, Rambo decides he should fight the honorable way and go till the death. But his, his, his platoon leader talks him out of it and they leave the door open for a sequel. Not so much in the book. In the book, his Green Beret commander um, comes up, finds John Rambo, who is threatening to blow himself up with dynamite to, to put an end to his misery. Um, doesn't, but ends up being killed by his colonel who had come to <laughs> had come to help him. A slight turn towards the dark. It is, um, it is, it is pretty bleak. All right, two more here that just endings that you didn't see coming if you uh, if you only saw the movie. Jurassic Park. Everyone's seen Jurassic Park. How many times would you say you've seen Jurassic Park over the years? Oh boy, uh, at least ten. And my uh, okay. my kid loves it, so I have seen it uh, twice recently. Okay, perfect. So the ending then, as everybody remembers, is they're in the they're escaping, they're running away. They get into this the dinosaur center at Jurassic Park, and all of a sudden they're surrounded by the raptors who are trying to kill them. And then the Tyrannosaurus shows up, and and again, I, I'm giving away all the endings here. I understand, but that's kind of the point here. If you haven't seen Jurassic Park by now, it came out in 1993. I'm sorry. I don't think the st- the statute of limitations on spoiler alerts has passed if it came out in 1993. Nonetheless. So, yes. Yeah, so the, di- the Tyrannosaurus Rex end up fighting with the raptors and the people all escape and they get off the island and everyone lives happily ever after. I read the book last summer. I thought it would be fun to read the book. And not only does Ian Malcolm, who is Jeff Goldblum, die. John Hammond, the creator of the park, Richard Attenborough, he dies. And then after the people get out, the rest of them get off the island, the Costa Rican Air Force comes in and napalms the island off the face of the earth and killing every single thing that was once there. Not quite the happy, joyous ending that uh, that once upon a time we, uh, we, we thought in that movie. All right, last one. And this goes back to, I got to find it here. This goes back to a Disney movie that somehow Disney turned into a charming kids movie. This may be the darkest, Matt, this may be the darkest and bleakest one of all sleeping beauty. Do you know the real story of sleeping beauty? I probably do. But again, like, see, I got to keep up on this media because this is like, this is like 15 years ago, (laughs) maybe even 20 years ago kind of thing. Okay, here's the dark, dark, dark part. Now, this is not really the ending per se, but it's um, but it comes to the ending. And, and you, you're going to have to go read the original of this to believe this is really the case. But And I go back to my point of how did Disney find this and go, we can turn this into something nice. Sleeping Beauty, the, the prince, a king actually, goes to Sleeping Beauty's castle, knocks on the door, hears no answer, climbs up a ladder through a window, a window, finds the princess, discovers that she's unconscious. Then this is where it gets like, it's so offensive in modern terms, has his way with her to the point where when she comes out of her consciousness, she's pregnant and gives birth. But the king, of course, is married to someone else. I mean, if you wrote that today, there would be not a publishing house in the world probably that would print that. That is, that is so far beyond what would be acceptable by any stretch anywhere. And yet that was what they turned into Sleeping Beauty. I, it's, it's, um, yeah, who knew? Who knew? All of them though. Snow White, dark. Lion King, dark. Tangled, dark. Pinocchio, dark. Beauty and the Beast, pretty dark. Cinderella, 
we talked about Little Mermaid, Cinderella. I mean, originally when, when the, the sisters tried to get their feet into the glass slipper, they wouldn't fit. So they cut off their toes in the original version and they found blood on the shoes when he went to try on. Anyway, dark, dark, dark. Who knew? Who knew all these happy ending movies all came from such a dark place? I did not. Anyway, there you go. That's been an uplift, an uplifting end to your Wednesday, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Just go watch the movies. <laughs> you'll feel happier. Just wa- watch the end of the natural. Don't worry about all the other stuff. Watch the ending of the movies, not the books, and you'll, you'll be just fine. All right. Your quiz question. Last chance today, speaking of movies and happy endings, because this one has a happy ending and the book and the real life situation all had a happy ending. They didn't fiddle with this one too much. Here on 900 CHL, this is Matt's five-year-old son, Elliot's favorite song. I wish we could give it more time to play out. Elliot, if you're listening, go to bed. (laughs) Not yet. Thanks for listening. Your dad's doing a great job, by the way. First time on the show. All right, your quiz question this evening. In the movie Apollo 13, the three actors portraying the astronauts who were stuck in the rocket ship were Tom Hanks, Bill Paxton, and who was the third one? The answer, of course... Kevin Bacon was the third astronaut. He was the guy who stirred the tanks that caused the explosion that led to the whole thing. Matt, anyone know the answer to that one tonight? Yeah, we had some people. I, I guess I could read them off. That would be a good that idea. That would be good. Okay, so we've got, uh, I'll, do, I'll do it a little bit slow, not too slow. Okay, so we've got Hugh, Zan, Walter, Angelo, Mary, Joe and Patricia, Paul, and Donna Lynn. If I missed anybody, I apologize. Way to go, all of you. New Year, Kevin Bacon. Wouldn't it have been awesome if he did like a footloose scene in the ship? Nah, that wouldn't have been good, but something for a future crossover. Might not, have aged. On... That might not have aged very well. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. But, you know, something to think about. You know, we, we, we talk about changing the endings from the books to the movies. Why not change the ending of the movies? So now when he gets back to Earth, rather than just getting off the rocket, there's a dance waiting for him. See, we could have really brought the level up on this one. Matt, listen, thanks for doing this today. Great job on the board. Thanks for your help. Folks, thank you for listening. We'll be back tomorrow at six. I would love it if you would join us then. We enjoy talking to you. We'll do it again. See you then.